0: The title of our message today is professedly Christian, and uh, you'll see where I got that I suppose here in a little bit, professedly, you say it, it sounds good, but maybe it's not the most genuine. I have a question for you, have you ever been asked to give your testimony? There's various ones within our denomination who have very powerful testimonies, right? Uh, I'm just going to share a few that come to my mind. Dwayne Lemon was a professional hip-hop dancer uh, who once got in a bar fight with another guy that I probably if I said what hip-hop group, some of you might recognize him, hopefully not, uh, but then he was pulled out of that. <clears throat> Doug Batchelor, he's the one here on the left-hand side. He lived in a cave, naked, but we won't mention that part. David Ashrick, he was a purple-haired punk rock atheist with baggy pants that completely enveloped his entire foot. Uh, but I couldn't find a picture of him. The other one here is Clifford Goldstein, who has a part in a lot of the Sabbath school lessons, has for years. He used to heckle Christians on the street, and I think he had some atheistic tendencies as well. Uh, Sebastian Braxton. I mean, he went to prison. And uh, so, if you've ever had some of these things, will you share your testimony? If you're anything like me, you say, What do I have to share? Can anybody relate to that? Now, here's me, on the other hand. I was born to an Adventist family. There I am, there, holding my Easter basket in Fresno, California. And uh, then, this is not too long after we moved to Collegedale. I was five when we moved, and Stephen was born. In Tennessee. And so I was somewhere in between those two ages when we moved. So, like I said, I was born to an Avenist family. My father was an Avenist pastor. His father was an Avenist pastor as well. So then we moved to Happy Valley. And here's a little aerial picture, if you will, of Happy Valley. I grew up eating Avenist food my whole life. I went to an Avenist grade school across the field from our church. And let me tell you, the Adventist church is already listed. Right here was my Adventist church. Right across this field is where I went to grade school, all eight years. I was part of an Adventist Little League softball group uh, that happened right here on these softball fields. We then shopped oftentimes at our Adventist health food store, which is right here, and shopped at our ABC, which is right there. The campus shop, all those wonderful things. I took piano lessons from an Adventist uh, right over here in the music building. Even got my teeth cleaned by an Adventist in our church that's not, their office isn't pictured here, but you just take Apples and Pike down here to Four Corners, and I got my teeth cleaned over here somewhere. (laughs) At age nine, I was baptized into the Adventist church. And my brother, Nolan, and I, we made good money mowing lawns for multiple Adventist families in the area, many of which lived right up here past the church. I think I cut this grass right here and multiple others back in the back. Before we could even drive, they would just drop us off and we would cash our checks at the Adventist-owned bank, which was right over here. <laughs> Are you starting to get the picture? In the wintertime, you can't mow grass in the wintertime. And so I worked for years as a janitor at one of our Adventist institutions. I would clock in right there to be a janitor and clean some buildings. Did that for, I don't know, six years, seven years, I think. Eventually, I went to our Adventist high school. Now, here's the church. Here's the grade school. For high school, I had to go down this way. You could either cross the field or take the sidewalk by the road. And this was the high school where I went to school, and we had our icebreakers right here in this field. We played softball in these fields as well. Uh, I even remember playing tennis on these courts when I was a kid. So while I was there in high school, I was asked to be the student association pastor of the school, and our graduation was held in the Adventist church that I've already pointed out, but at the age of 18, or maybe it was 19... Circumstances forced a change in my life. Upon graduation from high school, I had to leave. Beloved, I had to leave home. Gather up all my things and move all the way to the dorm, which is right here. To an entirely different room. A different bed in the same town, of course. And there I majored in theology. My junior year, I met my future spouse, literally for the first time, I think actually it was my sophomore year, for the first time literally in my parents' dining room table, which was just off the map, just up right over here. We like to say it was an arranged marriage. Her dad, too, was an Adventist pastor like mine. Ed and Ted are their names. And so after another Adventist graduation, there was an Adventist wedding, and I began working myself as an Adventist pastor. And since then, I've attended our Adventist seminary, pastored five different Adventist churches, have been employed by the Adventist system now for 15 years. Since the day I was born, all of our medical benefits were through the Adventist system. I am a fan of the Adventist system. I work and am supported by the system. There is no question. In a large part, I am who I am today because of the system. But I fear that the greatest danger among Adventists today... Is not that they will fall headlong into a life of gang violence or drugs or crime. I don't think it's because of teen pregnancy or alcohol or suicide. No, I believe the greatest spiritual danger oftentimes can be the mindset. That if I just avoid the obvious pitfalls, which granted is a good thing, but if I just avoid the obvious pitfalls, everything will be okay. We looked at this verse last time. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the one wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. He is able to keep you from falling. He is able to present you faultless. But it also creates this idea that as long as I'm not bad, then everything is good. I don't have a tattoo. That's cool. I haven't pierced anything. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I'm good. I'm in the church. Good. But is that the same as having the character of God? Does having Christ's character merely consist of not doing bad things? Can we educate our sons and daughters for a life of respectable conventionality? Respectable. It's conventional. A life of professedly Christian, but lacking his self sacrifice. A life on which the verdict of him who is truth must be I know you not. Is it possible we can go through the whole system and profess something, but that something has never really impressed my heart? Continuing on, thousands are doing this, they think, to secure for their children the benefits of the gospel while they deny its spirit. But this, what? Cannot be. Those who reject the privilege of fellowship with Christ in service reject the only training that imparts a fitness Remember we talked about wanting to fit in, not just get in? The only training that imparts a fitness for p- participation with him in his glory. They reject the training that in this life gives strength and nobility of character. So we don't miss it. What gives strength and nobility of character? Service. Developing a character that will fit in, not just get in in We also looked at this verse. 2 Corinthians 3:18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just by the spirit of the Lord. He wants to transform us, friends, into the same image, the same likeness, the same character as Jesus. And how does he want to do that? By the Spirit of the Lord. We talked last time, there's a difference between a transaction that gets you in and a transformation that fits you in. And there's a difference. We looked at this verse, and now little children, abide in him. That is key. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. How can we see the face of a holy God? By allowing that same God to make us holy before he returns. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the implication we talked about is, and not die. That's why character development is so crucial. Because it doesn't just get us to, but it gets us through the second coming. It prepares you to meet a holy God and live in a holy place with a society of holy beings. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when he comes again, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We shall be like him, friends, when he comes. It doesn't say made like. It doesn't say at that moment we'll be transformed or changed. No, it says we will be like him. And we'll be able to see him as he is. Revelation 22:4. they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. His character. How is that possible? Because they'll have the character of Christ. That's how we can see him. And some of you may have left here thinking last week, well, that's fine and Danny, but what about the thief on the cross? How much character did he develop? Well, not a whole lot, probably. But had he had more time, I believe he would have developed more fully his character. He had gone through that first, most absolute thing that must be gone through and that is that transformation of the will of the life to change the direction right to say I want to be with you when you come and the promise was given here's a quotation from the pen of inspiration I actually have in the leaflet of my bible it says when it is in the heart to obey God when efforts are put forth to this end, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man or woman's best service. And he makes up for the deficiency. Who does? He, Jesus, makes up for the deficiency with his, capital H, own divine merit. God knows what our best service is, doesn't he? He alone can read our hearts, he can see our motives, our desires. Nothing is hidden from Him. And at the core of Christ-like character is a surrender to the plans and the purposes of God in my life, which is miles away from the idea of, well, I'm good enough. Are you with me? Do you remember the parable of the talents? We can turn there briefly. I don't want to spend too much time there this morning, but if you brought your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, there's one there in the pew that you're welcome to use. And we're turning to Matthew chapter 25, beginning verse 14. And you know this story well, so we're going to zip through it pretty fast. But beginning verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them, and to one he gave how many? five talents to another two and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on his journey. Now you know how this story plays out, don't you? Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of the servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20, so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Isn't that what we want to hear? Two talents. Same thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Finally, we get to verse 24. One talent. He says, "I know, Lord, I knew you would to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. I took the character that you gave me, but I, didn't, I was afraid, so I, just, I put it in the ground and I hid it. I didn't try and develop it. I didn't try and improve anything. I just wanted to make sure it was there when you came back. I wasn't interested in fitting in. I just wanted to get in. And as long as I can return what you gave me in the first place, I'll get in. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the banks and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to another who has 10 talents. As we keep reading, it doesn't turn out well for this individual. Cast the unprofitable servant, verse 30, into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth friends the unprofitable servant he has not developed what he has been entrusted to him when much is given much is required my question is how much have you been given what opportunities are yours what things are available for you to grow in your walk with Jesus and in your character And the image of Him, your Maker. Or are you content with bearing what He's given you? Christ's Object Lessons. Wonderful book. We went through it in prayer meeting not that long ago. 355, it says, In this is given a warning to all who feel that the smallness of their endowments excuse them from the service for Christ. Does anybody here feel like they have a small endowment? I mean... I can't sing, I don't like to get up front, I'm scared to death of people and crowds, there's nothing for me to do, so I'll just sit back here and just not cause trouble. I like to think I'm excused from service for Christ. If they could do some great thing, how gladly would they undertake it? But because they can serve only in little things, they think themselves justified in doing nothing. In this they err. The Lord in his distribution of gifts is testing character the man who neglected to improve his talent and proved himself an unfaithful servant. Had he received five talents, he would have buried them as he buried the one. Friends, when it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man or woman's best service. And by grace, he makes up for the deficiency with his own divine grace. Merit, that's the good news. One talent, two talents, five talents, 25 talents, doesn't so much matter. What are you doing with what God's given to you? Are you giving God your best service? You can fool others, but can you fool God? Are you seeking to develop your character after Jesus, perfect character? Or are you just looking to get in and not worried at all about fitting in? Because in our Adventist bubble, we can be really good at keeping the bad out. And again, let me emphasize, that's a good thing. I'm not trying to tell us that we need to go move into the inner cities and that we need... You know, there's a place for individuals that feel called to that. But when we're raising our children and all the rest, there's a reason we have these things set up. But my point this morning is that is not a guarantee and that ultimately is not a heart issue. I can be subjected to the system, but eventually reject the God of the system. And so just by keeping the bad out doesn't mean I get a free pass. That's not the same thing. Doing good and developing a Christ-like character is important. So here's the question. Does true Christianity consist of merely not doing a bunch of stuff? Because in some people's minds, this is Christianity. You just don't do a lot of stuff. Some of you look like you need an example. Well, If you're part of the Adventist bubble, we don't do a lot of things. We don't have any other gods before him. We don't worship idols. We don't use the name of the Lord in vain. We don't murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet. We don't curse, drink, smoke, wear jewelry, work on Sabbath, don't engage in worldly entertainment, movies, and TV, and the list could go on and on and on. And I believe we can make a biblical case for many of those. I think we can make a biblical case for all of those. Let me be clear. Be careful little eyes what you hear or what you see and ears what you hear. And you isolate yourself off in your zeal to become sinless but the question I have is it possible that in our zeal to not sin we actually commit sin. You say hold on wait a minute. I'm confused. Now, this is a, a good Adventist verse. I like to think we know this verse. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the what? Oh, you know it. <laughs> yeah. Sin is a transgression of the law. How many of you can finish this verse? To him who knows to do good and does not do it, It is sin, you know that one too. To him it is sin. God doesn't want us to merely avoid or not do certain things. He also wants us to do certain things. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. Again, a story that you know well. Luke chapter 10, beginning verse 25. And because you know it well, I'm going to go over it quickly. But beginning in verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall, not, or you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live but he wanted to justify himself and he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed leaving him half dead. And you know the story. First a priest comes by and he goes by on the other side. A levite comes by, he goes by on the other side. Finally a hated Samaritan, a half-breed, is journeying coming down and when he saw him, he had compassion. The one that the people of that time despised. He's the one that has compassion. And look at all the things that he does in verse 34. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Then he leaves two denarii. says, if there's any tab. I'll pick it up when I come back. And then Jesus asked in verse 36, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed, he doesn't even want to use the word Samaritan, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. It doesn't just say what they've not done. Again, in Revelation 22, verses 11 and 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I thought I was supposed to just live my life and not be bad. And while there are things that we should not do, there are also some things that we need to do. You might be saying, like what? Well, for starters, we need to give the world the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. That is the end time, last day message for this hour that has been entrusted to us as a people to fear God, to love, honor, and respect God, to give glory to him by what we eat or what we drink or whatever we do. For the hour of his judgment has come. Jesus is ministering for us in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf that we may be victorious through his shed blood on Calvary. And it says, and worship the creator on the holy Sabbath day and to come out of Babylon, to come out of false religions that teach false doctrines, to keep all ten commandments by God's grace and have faith in him. But the question I still want to ask is, what is the context with which we should preach this message? Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 58. I want to spend a little more time here, but we're going to have to keep going fast. Isaiah chapter 58. You know, I meant to include on the email yesterday, somebody went through last week and got all the the verses and the quotes, and they put them all together. It fits on two pages And I intended to send that out with the bulletin and I forgot, but if you'd like that, I can email that to you and I'm happy to do that. Isaiah chapter 58, beginning verse one. We know this verse oftentimes for its reference on the Sabbath later, but I wanna look at the first few verses here. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. We like that part. Let's call people out. Let's show them where they're wrong. Verse 2, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation, they did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching God. But this is what they're asking. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you have not taken notice? Here the people are essentially saying, God, where are you? we're doing all of these things, we're doing all of this stuff, and we just, where are you? And God essentially responds back, where are you? Let's keep reading, verse four, or maybe we are stopped in the middle of verse three. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and you exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fists of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Basically, God's saying, you're doing all these things, but you're missing the big picture. You're missing the point. You're not treating each other nicely. You're debating. You're exploiting. Finally, verse 5. This is where I'm trying to get to. Is it a fast that I have chosen? God says. A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush? to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Verse 6, he says, let me describe the fast that I've chosen. Is this not the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that, they, that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall bring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Essentially, they're saying, God, where are you? We're doing all these things. And God's saying, where are you? You're doing stuff, but the spirit is wrong. Your love for others is absent your theology is not practical. It's just theoretical. He says, this is the fast that I have chosen. Verse 10, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. It will be bright if you do these things. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Friends, God did not call you or I to a life of respectable conventionality. God did not call us to just be professedly Christian. No, his idea of Christianity is bigger than the avoidance of sin. You need to live for others, Seventh-day Adventists. The people in Isaiah's time were so focused on themselves that they lost sight of doing good for others. We sing songs, and I love this song, lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring, Jesus is coming again. But if we believe that, what are we doing about it? Well, I try and just sit back and try not to get dirty so I can be ready. No, this passage cries out, there's a work for us to do. And it's a very practical work. Genesis 12, 2, I will make unto you a great nation. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. It doesn't say, I will bless you, enjoy. No, the purpose of the blessing is so you can represent the character of God in a dark place. So you can share that blessing with the world. Friends, could it be that our message lacks the power it could have? Because we're just teaching and preaching the message instead of living the message. In my life today, 241, it says, in the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the one we just read from, the work that the people of God are to do in Christ's lines is clearly set forth. They are to break every yoke. They are to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. If... They carry out the principles of the law of God in acts of mercy and love. They will represent the character of God to the world and receive the richest blessings of heaven. Christ's Object Lessons 384. Love is the basis of godliness. Whatever the profession, no man has pure love to God unless he has unselfish love for his brother. But we can never come into possession of this spirit by trying to love others. What is needed is the love of Christ in the heart. Don't you like that? It's not about trying. It's about Jesus living in us and changing us. When self is merged in Christ, love springs forth spontaneously. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others simply constantly flows from within or springs constantly from within. Friends, I don't think the world needs more proclamation of the character of God. The world needs a revelation of the character of God. And there's a difference between declaring something and revealing it from within. I wonder what the Seventh-day Adventist church would look like if we did both with a full push. It seems we can do one well. You may be thinking of churches that they reach out to the homeless and all these other things, they do it extremely well. Then there are other churches that they, they preach the message and the full gospel and they do that extremely well and both are necessary. But what would happen if we fully merged both together? Somebody here might be quick to say, you know, you're preaching social gospel. You just want to pass out bread, share a smile, and call that sharing Jesus. I agree, giving bread and not sharing with them the bread of life is incomplete. The gospel that we preach, however, must be inherently social. There's no such thing as a Christian hermit, it's oxymoronic. It's a word. Look it up. Jesus could have come in a glass box, in a jar, on a turntable. This is what divinity looks like. Ah. But he didn't. No, Jesus showed his character in what he did, not just what he didn't do. And it wasn't just in set times and set places, Sabbath mornings and church events. But it was all the time. Here are pictures that are from 1901. Does anybody want to guess the city? Oh, it's on the screen, of course. San Francisco. You're so smart. This is what we get from the pen of inspiration. She wrote this in 1901. We learn that there are many lines of Christian effort being carried forward by her brother and his sisters in San Francisco. These include, and I want you to keep track of this list as best you can, but you're not going to be able to keep up. Visiting the sick and destitute, finding homes for orphans and work for the unemployed, nursing the sick, and teaching the love of Christ from house to house, the distribution of literature, the conducting of classes for healthful living, and the care of the sick. A school for the children is conducted in the basement of the meeting house. In another part of the city, workmen's home. Do you know what a workman's home is? Homeless shelter. And a medical mission is maintained. On Market Street, near the City Hall, there is a bath establishment operated as a branch of the St. Helena Sanitarium. That is, what do they call water treatment type thing? Hydrotherapy, thank you. In the same locality is a depot of the Health Food Company where health foods are not only sold, but instruction is given as to reforms in diet. Near the center of the city, our people people conduct a vegetarian cafe, which is open six days a week and is entirely closed on the Sabbath. Here about 500 meals are served daily and no fresh meats are used. Dr. and Mrs. Lamb are doing much medical work for the poor in connection with their regular practice. They're volunteering. And Dr. Buchanan is doing much free work at the workman's home. At the medical and dental schools in the city, there are about 20 of our young people in attendance. We earnestly hope that the steps taken in the future in the work in San Francisco will still be steps of progress. Then she says this, the work that has been done there is but a beginning. San Francisco is a world in itself, and the Lord's work there is to broaden and deepen. Souls are to be sought for. The word of the Lord is to be declared, line upon line, precept upon precept, that his name may be glorified, End quote. That's in the Australian record, page 64 and 65. But essentially, she gives this huge, long list, and she says, that's a good start, I suppose we could ask, what does perfect religion look like? Wouldn't it be nice if there was just a text that said, this is what perfect religion is? Well, this might get close. James 1, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, colon. Here comes a definition. You ready? Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We're looking at a working definition, two parts. But we often just think the second half is the fullness of the character of Christ. But friends, Jesus didn't come merely to show us what not to do, but what to do to help Humanity. Pure and undefiled religion is this, scripture says. This is an interesting quote. Practical work will have far more effect than mere sermonizing. Can I get an amen? amen. We are to give food to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and shelter to the homeless. Now, I believe we should have evangelistic meetings where we share our full and complete message. And if you're watching via live stream and you're part of a church that is still doing evangelism, praise the Lord. If you're still doing door-to-door ministry, if you're still doing Cole Porter ministry, praise the Lord. But a worse rebuke is if you do neither. Yeah, I don't preach the word and I don't reveal the love of God. You don't get a cookie for that. That's not the objective. If you're doing public evangelism, literature evangelism, praise the Lord, but you are not done yet. A proclamation is only half the battle. They need a revelation of the character of God in good works. When we see someone hungry and we tell them what to believe, it loses its power. Practical work will have far more effect than mere sermonizing. When is the last time you heard of an Adventist homeless shelter? Can you think of one? Continuing on, Christ Object Lessons four seventeen, we are called to do more than this. The wants of the soul only the love of Christ can satisfy. If Christ is abiding in us, our hearts will be full of divine sympathy. You see, when Christ develops His character in us, we will long to help those around us in every way. And it's both in physical ways and kindness and compassion, but it's also in spiritual ways through God's Word and the message for this time. And Isaiah 58 reminds us that we need both says in Isaiah 58 that we just read then your light shall break forth like the morning you will call and the Lord will answer and he will say here I am Isaiah 58:10 if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul physical and spiritual then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday that's bright there's power when we do both Last passage I want to look at, another one that's very familiar. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, as we close. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come on in, he says. Why? Verse 35, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? To me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me. You cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Same list. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was in prison. And you didn't visit. Then they also will answer him with the same language. Lord, when? Did we see you, hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked, sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? The response is exactly the same. When? And all of these you, capital Y, the implication is clear. Lord, if we would have known it was you, we would have had a potluck. You could have come to my house. We would have had a clothing drive, collected cans, done in gathering, We would have done community service, prison ministry. We would have done it all if we knew it was you. But it wasn't you. It was just people. And these people want to get in rather than develop a character to fit in. Do you see the difference? And the righteous, I mean, they're not complaining, but they also ask, when did we see you? All we saw was people. And that's just what we do, and people need help. And Jesus said, that's my point. That's my point. You didn't know it was me, and you did it anyway. You fit in. Come on in with me. Friends, I believe God wants something more than just get you to a new place. No, he longs to transform you and I so that when we get there, we'll fit in. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we know ourselves all too well. We know our insufficiencies, but we also know by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that you will bring us to be more and more like you each and every day. So, Lord, we don't need to stress. We just need to focus our eyes on you. And when your Holy Spirit speaks to us to do something, I pray that we will respond for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org